You're listening to the B&H Photography Podcast. For over 40 years, B&H has been the professional source for photography, video, audio, and more. For your favorite gear, news, and reviews, visit us at bnh.com or download the BH app to your iPhone or Android device. Now here's your host, Alan Whites. Greetings and welcome to the B&H Photography GearCast. We recently spent a couple of very intense days at the third annual Optic Photography Conference, which is an incredible multi-day event consisting of lectures by world-renowned travel and adventure photographers, photo walks, an after-hours dinner reception, and an evening cruise around the island of Manhattan. Optic is sponsored by B&H and it's totally free. Ain't that something? At Optic 2017, we are fortunate enough to talk with a whole slew of incredible photographers, including Brooks Jensen, Allison Wright, Sam Simon, and Jill and Kyla from Our Wild Abandon. Our interviews with these amazing photographers and others will be airing over the next few weeks, but today we're going to switch into a GearCast mode and play a few of the interviews we conduct with representatives of some of the better-known and some of the lesser-known manufacturers of some very cool photo gear. We spoke with Rudy Winston of Canada and talked about some of the new products that are coming out with new technologies and some of the things he sees coming over the horizon. We're also going to be speaking with the ever-lovable Mark Favre from Sigma about the Art Series lenses and Foveon sensors and their cameras. We're going to speak with Tom Curley from Panasonic about the GH5 and some updates from Panasonic. And lastly, Rod Clark from Wine Country Camera, manufacturers of a really neat filtering system. Before we stoke the coals for today's show, I'd like to take a moment to humbly ask you from the bottom, top, and sides of my heart to take a minute, subscribe to our show, leave a nice little note. It's free. And speaking for John, Jason, and myself, we truly appreciate your help in this matter. Okay, that said, let's start today's show with Rudy Winston from Canon. We were talking about some of the challenges that... that Canon and other manufacturers deal with, and the and the topic of smartphones came up. And let's face it, that is a big thing. It's 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 affected photography greatly in manufacturing. And you and you and you said that one of the big challenges is coming up with a product that will be more seamless. With you, know, you take a picture and it goes to your phone or to your tablet or whatever. So so more more fluidity between the camera and everything that we put it out to. What kind of progress have you made coming out with a camera that you say ah? People are going to bypass their smartphone because they get that this camera is better than a smartphone and just as fluid to use. Well, I think the key word in question in your question is what kind of progress have we made? Uh-huh. Uh, the biggest thing we've seen in the last 12 months is the development of cameras where the Wi-Fi involves Bluetooth connectivity as well. Now, I'm not saying Canon's the first in the industry to do that, but they've done it now in a way that I think is just a lot easier for the average person to be able to connect to their phone initially, maintain that connection, or restore that connection once they have turned everything off. That's something we really didn't have before. We had Wi-Fi enabled cameras, but it was strictly with the stronger Wi-Fi based signals. Uh -huh. And once you, you know, if you understood how to set it up, sure, it wasn't that difficult. Uh, and once you, you know, broke the connection, you turn your camera off, you turn your phone off, you're done shooting and that kind of thing. Uh, it was a little bit of a hassle to get reconnected. The Bluetooth really smooths things out. Mm -hmm. I, but I, I go back to the word progress because that's what this is. It's a step in the right direction. In terms of a camera that everything from the, 
the ground up of the concept of the camera is to be able to shoot a picture and just get it out of Dodge wirelessly. We're still not at that thoughtlessly. Point. Yeah, thoughtlessly too. Yeah, we're still not at that point. Uh, we have cameras now like the, the Rebel T7i and the 7, EOS 77D that have that aforementioned Bluetooth connectivity. It's a lot better than it used to be. You can shoot a picture now and you can see it on your phone. You can go to your phone and just immediately download the picture and then send it out via the phone to Facebook or whatever. Uh, so it's, it's a lot simpler than it was. We're probably not where we need to be, but we have made some strides. I'm a bit... I guess skeptical is the word when it comes to Wi-Fi. And my question has to do more with professional photographers. What are you hearing from them? And what is your sense that professional photographers, and I'm not talking necessarily about the journalists, but I do want to hear about journalists. What do they care about whether or not they can get their photos from their camera to their phone to the computer right away? Well, certainly, you know, one thing many of them, when you're talking about photojournalists, one of the main things they want is just immediacy and speed. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I'm sure they'd like a system where you can shoot a picture and it just goes to your phone right. or whatever. We're not at that point. Right. Uh, you know, partly because of the, the size of the images, even though the system down reduces the size of a file before it isn't sending full res files mm -hmm. to your phone. Uh, but we're still not at a point where you can shoot it, you know, 14 frames a second with a 1DX and every frame is going to your phone. Right. But then again, why would they want it to go to their phone? They were going to want it to go beyond their phone to whoever needs to look to make that decision, whether that photo is going to be included on the right. website or on the newspaper, whatever it's going to be. Yeah. It's more the consumer cameras, from what I'm understanding, that are that are interested in including Wi-Fi and, and this kind of connectivity. I think it's like a lot of technological things in, in the development of cameras and photography that in many cases we see the first examples of it in the consumer it's arena. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. and you work out the kinks there yeah, and then you... You work out the kinks, but beyond that, the, de the demands aren't as critical. You know, the customers are every bit as important, but the demands aren't as critical. Uh, it's a chance to try out different technologies and so on and, you know, find out really what works. And in some cases, I don't pretend to be an expert on Wi-Fi, but in some cases, you know, clearly camera companies, not just Canon, but any camera company, uh, is waiting on developments in the infrastructure Outside, right, itself. Right. Uh, and there's only so much that we can do, uh, given not just what the major you know, computer makers and uh, cell phone makers are, are doing with you know, the iOS and with the Android system and so on. Uh, but uh, you know, we, I'm sure if uh, you, know, you put some truth serum in our engineers, they could tell you all kinds of things that they'd love to be able to do. Why don't you just stick a phone in each of your cameras? It's that would solve the problem. <laughs> you know, it's yeah, cheap, cheap, little cheap phone in here. Boom, done. <laughs> you know, it's a, that's, <laughs> Wouldn't that's, that be easy? Huh? That's, that's maybe not a silly a suggestion as it sounds. Oh, yeah. um, you know, and, and well, trust me. Manufacturers have tried that. Oh, and, I know, I know. Yeah, with you know, with yeah. amazing results, yes. Not, not so much, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, seriously, to your point, though, I mean, it's the mix, the blending of telecommunications technology and camera technology Imagine. is... It's not as simple a transition as it sometimes seems. And, uh, you know, Canon's not a telecommunications company. Uh, that's not where our techn technological expertise lies. That isn't to say that, you know, we can't, you know, embrace that and be ready for it. Uh, we're seeing, you know, again, I fall back once again on that word progress. Right. Uh, but I don't want to pretend for a second that we're where today's professionals would like to be, let alone where, you know, we'd like to be, you know, several years or, down the road. I know, at least from what I was writing up and from the stuff that's coming through our door at B&H, 
two, three years ago, there was a much more of a, a push, it seemed like, to get Wi-Fi into everything. Even is like it, tap technology. You don't even you just have to touch the two pieces yeah, together. I mean, and, right, the yeah, NFC. Yeah. 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 Is it still a priority or is it something that maybe the engineers and whoever's making these decisions are saying, well, you know what? We've gotten this far. We have this series of cameras that have that capability, but we're not going to be looking to put it in everything. Or is it still kind of... I, I want to be, be very careful how I answer this because sure. I don't work for our R&D department. Right. I, I don't understand. work in Canon's product planning mm -hmm. and they don't tend to talk about their long range right. plans, goals, Disclaimer aspirations noted. and so yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. So I don't, you know, I don't want anybody to hear this podcast and say, oh, the Canon guy said they're going to do blank. Of course. So all I'm giving you is my own personal impressions and so on. But the general answer to your question, do I think they're okay with kind of where they're at now? No, I think they realize they need to go further. I, I, think, they, I, I think we're going to see more and more of this, the blending of being able to take a digital image and being able to do something with it immediately. You know, we're, we're at that point where, you know, let's face it, uh, for better or worse, most of our customers don't print. Most of our customers are viewing images on screen. And I don't care if we're talking about kids in junior high school or if we're talking about, you know, serious enthusiasts, you know, shooting, you know, landscape pictures or whatever And that, and that it is. transition happened actually pretty quickly in the oh, yeah. grand oh, scheme of things. Oh, yeah. But th th there's more and more pressure to, on camera makers to be able to shoot an image and have the customer be able to at least select a favorite and get it out quick. And we know that. And so again, you know, we're, we're seeing movement in that direction. I'm, I have no idea, you know, looking at a crystal ball, what the next steps are, little steps or even big steps. But I'd be stunned if in the future, moving forward the next couple, three years, if you saw Canon just basically kind of put the brakes on this Wi-Fi stuff and just resort back to, yeah, you shoot your images, you put them on a card, you put them in your computer. We'll still have that, I'm sure, but, or at least I'm pretty confident. But I, I think that we're gonna see more and more emphasis on connectivity, yeah. as they say. Can we uh, maybe go to the other direction to talk about something that I know we talked about last year and it's always the topic here, but point and shoots. Um, we've, we're seeing the high-end point and shoots get a, a favorable nod and the low ends disappearing to some degree. I don't know if, if you want to say that or you feel that's that's accurate. No, it's, that's certainly fair. I mean, that's it, what's happening in the, that, in the marketplace. Of course, yeah. And is, is there any indication that anything like that is changing and how is Canon approaching that? Basically our approach to that is the market is what it is. Customers will buy what they really want to buy. And the advent of the smartphone has you know, really had a revolutionary effect on our entire industry. You know, the good news is people are taking more pictures than ever. That's the good news. Yeah. Uh, you know, as a camera maker, the bad news is that they're doing most of it with the phone that they, you know, make phone calls with in their pocket. Um, where we're really seeing the impact is exactly, as you say, in the compact digital camera arena. Uh, in, the can in the case of Canon, we'd be talking our power shot models. And you hit the nail right on the head. Uh, we still have good, strong sales success in the high-end field and in the long zoom field, the super zoom field, if you will, as well. And I'm sure this is not unique to Canon. I'm sure, you know, most other camera makers who are in the compact camera field will tell you the same things. Uh, and, and those products are very clearly defined as being very different from a smartphone, whereas most point-and-shoots, it's, it's gray. Well, yeah, you're right. 
it's, you know, what used to be a very, very hot category in the case of Canon, the digital ELF series cameras, sure. the little yeah. pocket cameras, which did so well for us for so many years that had, you know, usually relatively abbreviated zoom ranges, sometimes a three-time zoom or a four-time zoom. We still have a presence in that market, but we're not silly. I mean, we understand that. Yeah, but nobody really has a presence in so, that end of the so market. So as opposed anymore, to putting so. out four or five different ELFs in a year, you're going to be doing one or none or they'll, they'll we, certainly we, be picking and choosing mm -hmm. where they want to have a particular camera model you know as a dealer would say an SKU uh, and uh, you know we're not going to need you know lots and lots of different models it seems in that to me that's a smarter category. approach and an easier approach for a company to take here's something interesting just to your point is that the high-end category has remained relatively strong. Again, talking the you know non-interchangeable lens yeah. compact cameras, G what G we series. call power shots. The G and, series for right, Canon, right? The, I mean, like our Power Shot G series, right. perfect example. That used to be you know a one or two product category for us at any given time. Now we've got something like five cameras there. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, ranging from compact cameras reminiscent of those digital elves, but now with more control, better build quality, you know, higher resolution, and so on. Bigger sensors too. Uh, to uh, cameras uh, like the G3X with you know a long zoom capability, but in that G series suit of clothes where it'll have full manual control for the the enthusiast who wants that you know aperture priority, shutter priority, that kind of thing, as well as your automatic settings for the person who's looking for a more casual shooting experience. Uh, so the point being that uh, is as we have moved away from a multitude of models in the kind of low to mid range. They've expanded what's going on in the high end, mm -hmm. uh, knowing that there still is market traction there, and we want to be successful in mm -hmm. that market. And you're seeing that success is, I mean, things are stable for you guys at that end. Right. Anyway. It's, yeah. it, it's, yeah. it's, no, it's, no not, it's not exponential growth like it might have been, you know, seven, eight years ago, mm -hmm. but it's still an area where we're doing quite well. And can I ask, what, what are you seeing on the, let's, for lack of a better word, the low-end DSLRs, the, the Rebel line, the people that have their cell phones, they're not going to look to buy that compact. Are they going to look to buy that entry-level DSLR now? And is that the people you're going for? That seems to be the next step. The person who's you know shooting with a phone and who decides, I need a better experience. I need a better product. And you get that from either a higher end point and shoot or an entry-level DSLR. Well, that's what I'm wondering. Right. Yeah, so where the, where, where, what, many, many of them are going to the digital SLR, the promise of interchangeable lenses, uh, even for somebody who's not already a serious photo enthusiast, the promise of interchangeable lenses, you know, it comes on with an understanding that this is going to give me more flexibility. Long term, this could be a better investment. I may be able to do more things with this. Sure, it's not quite as compact yeah, as that It's not going in your pocket unless you've got really big pockets. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know. But uh, the, the short answer to your question is, the Rebel series continues to do extremely well in the U.S. market. You consider the features that camera has. If you just read through the specs, you get an awful lot of technology for a few hundred dollars. I, you know, I've been really? the, I've been shooting pictures long enough to remember when it was like a big deal back in the film days. I'm dating myself, but when it was a big deal that you had an SLR that was what we called a multi-mode camera. Mm -hmm. If a camera had shutter priority and aperture priority capability on it, it was like, whoa, this is a headliner. Yes. And, you know, you're absolutely right. You look now at an entry-level camera like a Rebel, and, you you know, we take it for granted. 
you have you can you can do spot metering or center weighted metering or evaluative okay. metering. You can take professional quality photographs. That's maybe the most important thing is that even with the least expensive Rebel camera, a Rebel T6 or something, uh, a simple camera that you might get at a department store. You know, for those people who aren't smart enough to go to B and H. You can get professional grade pictures, and that's a great point. And I think this is one of the reasons why the digital SLR remains an extremely viable area. And you know, I'm not in our sales department, so I'm not privy to all the numbers on a week-to-week basis. But in general, it seems like we remain fine in that category, whether we're talking Rebel or you know, moving up the line as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, Lenses? What's, uh, what's new in terms of lenses for DSLRs, I have, obviously? Yeah, we've, uh, lenses, we've been doing some interesting stuff, and it's clear, really, if you take a wide-angle, and this is a pun, <laughs> if you take a wide-angle view no of allowed. it, um, <laughs> what I mean is if you just look over the past, like, four or five years, our engineers have been doing several things really interesting and compelling. Uh, the first is... At the consumer and mid-range levels, we're starting to see some very interesting developments with things like uh, the nano USM ultrasonic motor technology, uh, which lends itself beautifully to things like video, where Mm -hmm. the focusing is not just quick, but it's extremely smooth. Uh, It's not that kind of herky-jerky action that... There's a lot more fluidity. Right. Yeah. So we're seeing that on lenses that aren't really steep in terms of what the customer has to pay. So we're seeing some neat developments there, uh, given the customer at the entry level and the mid-range customer to some degree, uh, a nice entry into video, as well as for the still images too. The other thing though, is we've seen a real doubling down of the lenses that we offer to our professional customers. Um, What they've done in the last, uh, not just, I'm not talking just the last few months or whatever, but really over the last like five years or so, when you look at second generation lenses that we've come out with, for instance, uh, the 24 to 70 F2.8 version two, the 70 Mm -hmm. to 200 F2.8 version two, Mm -hmm. the 100 to 400 L series version two, those lenses are spectacular. The previous lenses that were quite good, these are, you know, almost otherworldly in terms of how good they are. So we're seeing some neat developments there. And while I'm not privy again to what the R&D department has, you know, in the pipeline, uh, I am very confident that we're going to be seeing a continued commitment to our serious users, to those who have invested in our system at the high end. And, you know, obviously it goes without saying that we're going to see that, at least it seems to me, uh, for our customers, you know, in the entry level and mid-range categories too. Hmm. Any, uh, I think, I, was it the fourteen twenty four that came out last year? That's another year? one. I mean, that's and it was incredible lens. Is there any one new pro series lens that has come out that just kind of took Canon by storm or surprised you guys with how well it did? I mean, that might be an example, but that know. you know something as you said. I mean, that one might be as good an example as any. Uh, not only in terms of the timing because it did come out about a year ago or so, but uh, what that lens is, what it does. The image quality, the lack of linear distortion on that lens, uh, its ability to contain flare, even if you're shooting right into the sun, and it's the widest angle lens in the world that is not a fisheye. It's not a cheap lens, it's not a tiny lens, but in terms of something that if you like wide angle, 
uh, you know, believe me, your ship has come in. <laughs> <laughs> and what kind of feedback do you guys get from your pro photographers, the people that you work with, some of your ambassadors, in terms of the development? I know you're not an RD guy, but is there a, some back and forth you guys have? Do you get feedback? Do you sit down with, with photographers and say, hey, what... You know, what are we missing from our line? We, we do. Uh, we have, uh, and for, for many, many years, we've had uh, a program of high-end photographers that work with us called the Explorers of Light program. Mm -hmm. We have had that for probably going on 25 years. Yeah, sure. Uh, and uh, it's, it continues to be a great wealth of information for us, and that is one of the areas that it is. From time to time, we'll reach out to explorers. I've actually had the privilege uh, on a couple of occasions of uh, moderating what amounted to a uh, discussion panel with a group of our engineers from Japan that involved a translator and all kinds of other stuff uh, to give them direct feedback on lens development and so on. That was a number of years ago. But the point is we, we do that kind of stuff. The short answer to your question is absolutely uh, we do that. And we welcome feedback from you know anybody. They don't have to be a working professional. If you've got you know, uh, information, please you know, let us know. Okay. Um, my, again, I, and I realize, you know, you're not a sales guy, not an R&D guy, but can but you... But if you were. But if you were. <laughs> uh, can you maybe think of a time where your, your crystal ball was wrong? Like where you, you thought looking forward, this is going to be the next big thing or, or this product or this line is going to really do well. And for whatever reason, it just didn't happen. I'm sure there have been. Um, you know, if you go back far enough, and I'm not talking about, you know, way, way back in the film there era. There were a couple of cartridge cameras which tanked. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that's no, way back. Talk that's right. Five years here, five, ten years. You know, I mean, something that... Yeah. I think if it, one of the things that characterizes our company, if you look at our history in cameras anyway, one of the things that characterizes us is that we rely very heavily on technology. And Canon is a big believer in developing their own technology, not just simply, oh, there's, you know, technology out there. Let's, you know, buy some and put it in. It's not to say that never happens, but they rely very, very heavily on their own technology. And they tend to be very cautious with markets. Um, you know, I, what we're doing with the so-called mirrorless category is a good example. Uh, you can go back in time and see what happened with, you know, digital point-and-shoot cameras and digital SLRs as they developed at the turn of the 21st century uh, and even back to autofocus uh, back in the 1980s when we were still shooting film. Canon wasn't the first. Uh, that's not really RMO. Uh, they tend to be kind of cautious. So coming back to your question, I'm sure there are places where they've made some missteps, but you don't normally see big mistakes from them. What you don't normally see in particular is a system mistake. You know, you can sometimes, you know, have a particular product that just, okay, it, good idea, but it just never really panned out. There, there's certainly been, you know, some of them along the way. And I'm sure in the future there'll, you know, be one or two as well. Can Canon was the biggest pusher for CMOS sensors early on when everybody else was CCD. Right. You guys held on to that and you and you made it happen really right and that's a good example of believing in their own technology because we had we had spent a lot of time doing you know foundational research and development on sensor technology and they very early came to the conclusion 
that CMOS sensors represented what would be the future. And as you say, it's pretty much been proved right. Yeah, but uh, I, I remember when the argument between Canon and other cameras, well, Canon's doing CMOS, you don't want to go there. But you guys were actually improving it at that point. Exactly. And, and, and the argument became real weak real fast. It, that's that's within, great. Within one or two generations of your cameras, no, you proved that no, CMOS is where we're going, and everybody else ultimately joined you. Right. It's a, that, that, that's a great example. Yeah. Of recent announcements, what are you most excited about? What's new from Canon? Um, maybe it's unfair. I always gravitate towards what we offer to the serious enthusiast and professional. Mm -hmm. uh, I love what we're doing with cameras like the 5D Mark IV. Mm -hmm. uh, I continue to love the 5DS and 5DSR. Uh, yeah. They're not the latest yeah. kids on the oh, block how anymore. How are they doing? I'm kind of curious about the, they remain, the R. They remain very steady mm -hmm. sellers. Mm -hmm. uh, they're not gonna, the numbers aren't off the charts, but my understanding is anyway. But they remain a steady seller. And I always tell people that inquire with me about it, if you buy that camera for the right reasons, they'll love it. Uh, it's, it's not the right camera for everything and for everybody. But Very few cameras are. Right, no, that's a good Man, point. Seriously. That's a good point. Um, and maybe that, that's an interesting segue into the, the 5D Mark IV. Uh, that really comes, in my opinion, so close to being a real Swiss army knife. You're talking a camera that can shoot seven frames a second. I remember when professional sports cameras couldn't shoot seven frames a second. Sure, I remember. Um, I remember when four was blazing. Right. Sure, yeah, three so, and I mean, four. You know, it, it's a camera that you, if you need to, you can shoot action and sports and stuff with it. Uh, it's got an excellent focusing system. It's got 30 million pixels. Uh, the image quality, not just in terms of the pixel resolution, but just in terms of other things, tonal range, et cetera, et cetera, is better than we've ever had in the 5D series before. Uh, this camera maybe comes closer to being a universal high-end camera for the working professional, for the serious enthusiast, maybe arguably than anything we've had before. Uh, it's not the least expensive camera in our lineup for sure, but it just, you know, if you look at the feature set to be able to do, uh, that camera has impressed me from day one uh, in terms of the number of boxes it checks, mm -hmm. the number of potential photographers they could legitimately be interested in this, replacing earlier gear that they had, or just you know, kind of simply moving up to something uh, you know bigger and better, so to speak. I'm wondering, and this is a, maybe it's just a theoretical question, hypothetical, if it's being purchased more by the people that had the two or the three, and now they're ready to go up to this one, or who someone's going to jump in kind of cold to the whole series, you know, and just go right for the best that's out there, the latest. You know? I don't have empirical data to tell you that it's more one or the other, but I, I gotta believe it's a reasonably even split between the two. Because I tell this to a lot of my colleagues at work. I work in our customer education department, actually. Uh, and um, so, you know, much of my day-to-day -day work is working in developing online and you know, helping out with live delivery of presentation content that's educational in nature. But one of the things I emphasize to my colleagues at work, and I'm coming to your question, is if you look at the, just the numbers of people who have bought Rebels, Rebels alone, over even just the last three or four years, let alone since the first digital Rebel in 2003, the numbers are just scary. How many people in the US market have a Rebel in their home? 
And, you know, I understand not every one of those people wants to step up now and get a, you know, a really excellent, you know, high-end camera. I get that. Uh, some are, you know, extremely casual amateurs who will be, you know, happy with what they got, or maybe if they're going to replace it, they're just going to get a new Rebel. But um, the bottom line is I think there's been a lot of movement with some of those people who have decided, I want to make that step up. I want to raise my photography game. I got started with this Rebel, whichever, whatever model, uh, you know, could have been a year ago, could have been two, three years ago, could have been five, six, seven years ago or more. Uh, and I think, you know, many of them look to something like the 5D series as, you know, the reasonable pinnacle of what they can, what, what they could reach for. You know, a, six, a, a $6,000 camera like an EOS 1DX is probably out of the ballpark for many people yeah. simply on money alone right. who aren't working professionals. And I get that. Yeah. You don't um, need it. Who but, needs it to? Yeah. And, I, and that's, people. you know, arguable. That you're right. I mean, that, that could be certainly, uh, you know, argued too. But I, I think for many of those people, uh, the, the, the idea the of stepping into a, into a 5D series camera is... It's the, Goldie, the Goldilocks yeah. syndrome, right? Yeah, it's, it's, it's really a very, very good comfort zone, I think, for a lot of aspirational photographers. Yeah. Just, as, yeah. just as a little... little Counterbalance there. You're talking about the original Rebel going back to 2003. Digital Rebel. It had the, it was called the Digital Rebel to separate it from exactly. the film Re Rebel. That camera cost three thousand four hundred ninety-nine dollars and had a three point eight megapixel sensor, if I'm not mistaken. It did about uh, let, three frames let, a second. Well, let me let me. Let, I, <laughs> you're, you're thinking, I think, of the D30. Okay. Which would have been a few years earlier. The D30 That's was in 2000, to. 2001. Yes, yes. And added. At its time, a three million pixel camera that cost three thousand dollars—that was mind-boggling. That was a very, very, very affordable price. Oh yeah. At the time, uh, when the digital rebel came out, which was two or three years later in two thousand three, that was remarkable because it was the first camera that, with a lens, you could buy for nine ninety nine. Hmm. And I think it was a six megapixel, right? right. Exactly. <laughs> I have one maybe last question, and we should let Rudy go. But and and you may not have the answer to this. But do you know who or does decided to call the American version of these cameras the Rebel? Do you know how that came about? Well, it it has to do. This is going back now before digital. Before digital, yeah. 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 Back to our film cameras, yeah. and when the first EOS Rebel film camera came out, uh, it was radically smaller and lighter than anything that we had had in the EOS autofocus line up to that point. And they knew that this was gonna be a camera targeted at a mass market audience, and they wanted to make a big splash. And they felt that they needed a big marketing presence and campaign, and they wanted something that was a little out there, yeah. for Canon anyway. Edgy. Yeah, a little, there you go, yeah. that's a perfect word. Yeah. A little edgy, yeah. uh, considering the Canon's, you know, sort of a conservative company generally. Mm -hmm. um, and if you remember, our spokesperson in those years for a long time Andre was Andre Agassi, yeah, who when this first came out, Andre Agassi was this long-haired guy that was very brash and on and off the tennis court, had a, you know, was worldwide popular, and he was our spokesperson. And the, I can't tell you the person that came up with the name Rebel, but when they were fusing this concept of this advertising campaign with Andre Agassi and trying to create this exciting new category that so many customers could reach into because it was affordable, 
um, they decided let's go with the the idea of a rebel. You know, Andre Agassi's a bit of a rebel in the in the conservative tennis world. Here's a camera that's doing something different and exciting. And then did the European or the worldwide name, which is just this, the near the number series, did that come after the fact, or did is there any? I, you know, honestly, you know that I, I got to be straightforward. I can't give you the exact genesis of how we kind of went with the number concept in Europe, and uh, with the they call it the EOS Kiss in Japan and oh, in Asia. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So I know that one of the things that they, one of the reasons they had different naming was concerns back in the day about the gray market sales and so on. Uh, but exactly how they arrived at the English word "kiss" for the Asian market and how they arrived at EOS with you know numbers for the European market, I'm not sure really on how that happened, but the rebel, the rebel name for the U.S. North American market is an interesting one, and that, it, it was, you know, somebody smarter than me working, uh, you know, with the ad agency somebody or whatever. Shouldn't. And it stuck. Oh, it stuck. It's quite a moniker. Yeah. Rudy, I have another question for you, and that has to do with all the rumors we see online. Uh, what's happening with the full-frame mirrorless camera from Canon? Can you elaborate on anything? Any clues? Any little hints? We'd love to see it. Um, is, you know, what they'll do is anybody's guess. You know, we're certainly aware of, you know, what's going on in the marketplace. Uh, and, uh, but where they're going to take that is anybody's guess. We, I mentioned before that Canon tends to take its time with markets and, you know, with the mirrorless interchangeable lens category in general, it's obvious that Canon has had a very, very conservative beginning. Uh, but they've started in, in the APS-C category with the EOS M series. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've started now to see some some traction. The EOS uh, M5 is a nice camera. It's got some nice features. It's almost like an ADD in a mirrorless form factor. Yeah. And uh, the uh, M6, uh, you can, you know, sort of the same thing without a viewfinder uh, if you want something even more compact. So we're, we're starting to see uh, some, some really nice efforts there. What'll happen, you know, will we see a full frame product? Your guess is as good as mine. I'm not trying to be coy. Uh, but it's, you know, we're certainly aware of customer demand for something like that, uh, if nothing else, to go along with our SLR offerings. Well, I next year, at the same time, a year from now, you'll be bringing us up to speed on all the new things, and we'll pick your head for new rumors as well. We should, we should do this for years to come. What do you say? <laughs> it, it'll Obviously, it'll always be my pleasure. <laughs> That's great. Rudy thank Winston you, Rudy. Cannon, thank you so much for stopping by. Okay, coming up next, Mark Farb from Sigma. Greetings and welcome back. Thank you for having me. Great, great to be back. Let me, we actually, what do you, is Sigma, what, what follows Sigma? Is there a name like Sigma? Sigma Corporation, Corporation USA. USA. Okay. Yeah. All right. Just wanted to be sure on that. There's also, okay. I think, a couple of frat houses that start with Sigma, That's if I'm true. not mistaken, too. Yeah, that, that would be bad. <laughs> <laughs> There's no hazing, right? No, 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 okay. no. no, no. We, we, we want to avoid that. Anyway, <laughs> last year we, uh, we, we did a lot of talking about the art series lenses, which has really been bringing you guys like... Way up in the distances. forefront, yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, major players. So uh, talk to us. Tell us what, what, what new can we expect to be seeing? What's coming oh, wow. down the bike? Well, we've got a couple of lenses that we're waiting very impatiently on. You know, the new 14 millimeter. Yeah. Um, which, again, is an incredibly, you know, wide rectilinear lens. But when you talk about being able to pick up a lens like that and see perfectly straight poles, 
when you're doing video. Yeah, yeah, at, yeah. At 180 degrees. It's I'm gorgeous. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. Now, that's coming out in the near future? They're due like any moment. Okay. Along with the tw new 2470, which I don't know much about other than it's new. Um, and it's 2470. Right. So they've re... They've improved upon what we had previously, but they've added a stabilizer, which is pretty much the only thing I know about and it. And this is a 2.8 lens. Yes. We have the new 12 to 24, which is a monster compared to the old 12 to 24. Uh -huh, uh -huh. But again, when you be, when you look at something at 12 millimeters and you're looking at perfectly straight lines, there's no keystoning, there's no bending of perspective, there's no distortion. It's it's wild. That's where the, that's to me the most exciting thing is I'm I'm always talking about I'm an ultra wide nut. And I, I find it amazing when you have a lens that could take in that kind of field of view and still render parallel lines parallel. Perfectly parallel. Like there's, there's no doing correction in post. It's, mm -hmm. just, it's beautiful. And then also to know that it's sharp from start to finish. It's a, it's a constant F4 lens. So again, you've got this huge chunk of glass. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But it, it's a gorgeous piece of glass. And just to see the marvel of, of how they the, the hand polishing and, and what goes into it. There's also the new 135, which is, I, I've got the sample about a month, and I've yet to have five minutes to go out and shoot any images with it. Well, and that, you should leave it with us. We'll use it. I, did, I, I already <laughs> did a review of it. I did a review of it. I shot it for two weeks, and I loved it. Some of the images are good, and I, I love the lens, so I spoke about it really highly. Yeah. Yeah, let's take a look in the BH. And, and again, I do a lot of portrait work, but I just I haven't had time. I've been traveling and, and doing a lot of a lot of uh, dealer shows and, and a lot of sales and stuff, but no time to shoot. Mm -hmm. So now it's like I've got a, a, an arsenal of new glass. I've I follow go out you and play. on Facebook. You're out there playing a lot. I see what you're up to. <laughs> okay, I'm not crying for you. You're oh, all no. over the place with your cameras. What about when the 85? I came try. Out? I do try. <laughs> the 85 came out to incredible reviews and you know DxO marks. I mean, how how did you guys react and how did Sigma feel when that you know kind of hit the hit the news stands? Um, I'd probably say that the, they weren't surprised, and that was kind of where everything was headed and what people were looking forward mm -hmm. to. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's like I said last year. It's like th this whole new lineup of glass. It's nonstop, and there's not a dog in the bunch. And just every lens that keeps coming in, the new 100 to 400 has the new hi hypersonic motors in there, and it's incredibly fast, incredibly sharp, and you've got a... a, a perfect price point lens for the average consumer. So it's not to say it's a cheap lens, it's affordable. Mm -hmm. We know that the art series are doing incredible, but is that also kind of translating to the contemporary series as well? Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And even on the cine side, you guys mm -hmm. know that we have a whole new line of cine lenses. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, a lot of these lenses are, are doing dual, dual duty, if you will. Um, where you've got the same glass that's inside of those, even though the housings are different, they're designed specifically for cine work. You know, you've, it's all manual operation, but you've got the, the communication, so you can do your color grading and you can do all your metadata, but, but the glass is just unbelievable. So it's, it's, it's helping in both cases. Um, what people aren't realizing and what makes it so good is part of that whole early, you know, foveon calibration thing. Mm -hmm. So these lenses are actually calibrated and set to be able to resolve to 8K, which is 51 megapixels. So everything is being based on pretty much 8K video at this point. Now you mentioned foveon. That's a whole other wing of Sigma. Right. It's, it's, it's a company that we own. Right. And it's, the, you know, the sensor company and they make the cameras and we actually have um, the new DP Quattros and the, and the, and the SD Quattros which are our Sigma mirrorless cameras, which um, 
Who are you targeting with these cameras? Because again, for those of you who don't know, it's the Foveon sensor. It's a whole different technology. And it's, it's had controversy from day one. It has. It definitely has its strong points. Where are we going? We were talking film and talking earlier. So um, think medium format. You know, you have a camera that's capable of a 51 megapixel file. So it's shooting raw DNG, um, JPEG, and TIFF. But to take a 156 megabyte DNG file through your normal workflow and work it just like you would a Hasselblad or a Mamiya file or a Leaf or a Phase file and have the same integrity for something for a fraction of the cost. Now, when you say same integrity, how, how would they compare? Um, you've got a, a 12 and 14-bit capture, basically. Mm -hmm. So um, where the Foveon sensor is actually three sensors layered on top of each other and you have a semi-transmissive component there where mm -hmm. they're, you get the same, you're getting color through each layer. But every, every photon, every pixel basically ca captures all three okay, colors rather than right. it, Yes. But it's also the way it's, it's assembling the image itself. If you've got the three sensors putting it together. So when it finally puts it together, you've got this incredibly huge image. And the integrity on it is just, it's as good, if not better, than medium format. So, you know, while you have, like, Hasselblad has their 100 megapixel camera, we're doing... 51 megapixels in something that's a fraction of the cost. And the image quality is right there. You know, when I'm able to shoot a test chart and straight out of the camera hit Pantone colors without trying, you know, that, that there's something to be said for that. So what you're saying is that you're calling the Foveon sensor, the Sigma camera sensor, equal to a medium format? Yeah. Okay. I've used the, the DP series, uh -huh. and I, I like them. And uh, why aren't the cameras catching on? The, the, why, why do we not see Sigma DSLRs going along with this great Sigma glass? There's, in, in my mind, there are a couple of reasons for that. Now, the cameras are very unique in their design and mm -hmm, shape and mm -hmm, form. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Totally we, unorthodox from A to Z. And you, we all know, sitting here, that you know, the, the appearance of something, if it's not traditional, is hard for people to wrap their head around sure. and, and get into. Mm -hmm. um, you have to see the image quality that comes out of it mm -hmm. before you can even wrap your head around what you can do with the camera. So there are the purists that are out there that want to do real hardcore landscapes, people who've shot medium format and large format film, they gravitate towards this. It's not a camera to replace your Canon or Nikon to do 10 frames a second to go out and shoot sports. You can shoot fast action with the cameras, but it's not designed for that. You know, it's designed for the higher end, the, the if you want to see the tool markings on an aircraft when you go to the air show, so you, you go out to Oshkosh and you want to photograph all of the old aircraft, you want to show something really wild and crazy, that's what you're going to do. As a matter of fact, last summer I went out to Geneseo, New York. There's a warplane museum up there. I did a three-stitch, a three-frame pano inside one of the cockpits of, of one of the planes. At one-to-one, -one, when I'm able to open the image and show them the dust inside the hmm. altimeter, yeah. Um, they're completely blown away. And are you guys gonna, and this is a tough question, I know you don't have, maybe have all the answers, but is there a market of photographer that you guys are pushing these cameras towards specifically? Or is that, because as you're saying, that's the market that they're yeah. for. I mean, they're not, you know, no one's gonna grab one if they need to shoot, you know, 20 frames a second. Right. And if they're a little, if they're a consumer who just wants something in their pocket, they're not gonna get those either. So how are you gonna find that market? 
there there are those dedicated people who are Foveon fans from year one, mm-hmm. um, but we are looking to at different ways to try and figure that part out. Um, personally, I think that people who are doing package design, people who are doing um, again landscape, have more time for travel photography type things. They're definitely targets. People who who should consider looking at these cameras. So basically, if you work in a tripod, is that fair? Well, even, you know, a, a real studio photographer works on a tripod, well, too. Well, I'm, I'm saying, seriously, the thing is, my point is, when you put a camera on a tripod, that means you're thinking a little bit differently. Absolutely. And that kind of photography. That kind of photography, Absolutely. Yes. Definitely. Someone who's a little bit more... Um, it's not run and gun. ...meticulous, it's, it's, someone who's, who's definitely going to think about their art a little differently. Was there, a, like, a major corporate philosophy shift to let's kind of, let's create lenses that the best of the best are going to want to get. Uh, yeah, where was the seed when, for when, that? Yeah. Well, again, I'm with the company um, just about six years. So we're, you're right around the time when I came in. At that point, the um, original founder of the company had passed about a year, I think, before that. So when his son took over, his son basically said, you know what? I don't want to be a third-party company. I want to be an answer to what am I going to use? So designs changed, engineers changed, they brought in different, different people to, to rethink things and then came up with this whole brainchild of revamping all the product line. So and it really did go back to, there was a person here. Oh, yeah, no, 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 no. Being made. Yeah. no, oh, no. Yeah. Kazuto Yamaki put a yeah. lot of thought and effort behind it and yeah. saying, you know what, it's time to stop messing around and I want to show people that this is the product that you want. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I read some interviews with him when I was doing research for that 135 and, and, and he was very clear on just what you said, you know, we don't want to be this anymore and it's going to take some time. Yeah, no, and, and he's, he's, he's taken a lot of care and effort into choosing the right people and putting people in place to do things. Um, the engineers, which a couple of them that I've met are just, they're absolutely, they're amazing. They're, you know, very, very creative people and the fact that they listen to what the photography community is looking for and the fact that they still have the mantra of they want affordable product out there and quality product. Is there anything new camera-wise coming up? or What we have with the, the Quattro H and the, and the SD Quattro, mm-hmm. those are the newest. One of the neat things that most people don't realize is that there's the low-pass sensor yeah. inside the camera that you can remove, end user can remove, they're infrared ready at that point. Oh, wow. So if anybody's looking to jump back into infra- infrared photography, um, I think it's down to 300 nanometers. Mm-hmm. So you have the opportunity. You don't have to destroy the camera to make it infrared ready. You've just got to go online to B&H and buy some um, you know, 89 or 87 filters and get out there and have at it. Pick your, yeah, pick your slice of the spectrum and go with it. Exactly. Yeah. So, and the fact that you can actually compose. The camera's live view, so you're composing real time. You don't have to worry about setting it up, focusing, and then putting it all back together. Right. You're able to, to, to shoot on the fly and do everything that you want to do in one shot. So another opportunity, which I don't think a lot of people realize. So very neat stuff. Yeah, good little twist. Cool beans. Okay. Mark Fobb, Sigma Lenses, thank you for joining us again. We look forward to next year. Thank you, guys. Appreciate you having me here. After a short break, we're going to come back with Tom Curley from Panasonic. We hope you're enjoying this edition of the B&H Photography Podcast. Send us a tweet at bhphotovideo, hashtag bhphotopodcast. Nice to see you again. You were with us last year. Yes, sir. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. So, 
Panasonic, what's exciting? What uh, what cameras you want to tell us about? What's the latest and greatest from you guys? Well, definitely the GH5. Okay. Uh, our biggest launch ever. Yeah. In fact, it was at B&H, I think it was end of March. It was March 30th, around there. Sounds 20, right. 29th, maybe. Right at the end of March, we had our, our live event mm-hmm. at B&H Photo. And uh, that's when the cameras started shipping. Uh, our supplies out of the factory during the launch have been very, very good. So I think B&H has been able to keep up, well, first of all, fill all those pre-sales mm-hmm. that you've been gathering since we introduced the camera at CES show in January. And um, our shipments from the factory have been very healthy. So I think availability is uh, very good right now. So, And the reason why everyone's lining up and popping down the cash for this camera is? <laughs> well, what are some of the good features, what new yes, features on it's this? It's a mirrorless camera. Uh-huh. It is micro four-thirds system. Mm-hmm. So it's a four-thirds sensor. We have a micro four-thirds lens selections to choose from. If your listeners are familiar with our GH series, including the GH4. We have a lot of... That's a le- I mean, that's yeah. almost a legendary camera. Sure. Yeah, right? Well, it's the mean, first camera with 4K. Yeah, 4K yeah. So we took the GH4, listened to all of the input from our customers, and uh, see what we could do to improve on it, and that's what the GH5 is. So let's see, what we got is a stabilized sensor. So in-body stabilization mm-hmm. has been added, um, but it's not just a stabilized sensor in the body. We have what's called dual IS, dual image stabilization. Our current version is called dual IS2. It's just optimized. Um, what it means, the dual, what it means is body plus lenses. Right. So for our Lumix lenses that are stabilized with our optical you know, image stabilization, the camera system will now work uh, in conjunction with the lenses that are stabilized, you have that doubling or dual effect of stabilization. It's just phenomenal. And is there a number, an equivalency number? Because they often talk about that with, with uh, mm-hmm. yeah. How many stop advantage? Yes. Five. Five. Okay. So not to be confused with the fact that it's five-axis stabilization, but the, you get five stops of stabilization. Right. And, it, and the the latest versions with the improvements in the algorithms and the dual IS two is mostly. Um, of benefit at those longer focal lengths. That's oh. where we put the improvements. Okay, interesting. And the the, the feedback that you got from customers, uh, was it mostly regarding the video, and is that where most of the improvements went to? or Because obviously it kind of became known as a video shooter's camera, and, yes. uh, and it, it takes great stills, we know that, but what did you guys look to right. when it was improvement time? Good Good point to mention that. However, we feel that there are just as many improvements or, or uh, um, features in the camera for the still shooters as there are for video. I mean, we, we see and hear a lot of people commenting uh, online on YouTube from the video community because that's what these guys do. They make videos. So it's easy for them to sit down and pop out a YouTube video with their ideas, their test footage, their comments and everything. But there's a lot that this camera has for the still shooters, too. Uh, for example, uh, we removed the low-pass filter. The anti-aliasing filter is removed. We get a much, much sharper image in the files, JPEGs, RAW. Um, the reason for the anti-aliasing filter is to reduce the um, more a tendency of more A patterns. But with the new sensor engine 
in this new, uh, the sensor itself is a 20 megapixel sensor, and coupled with that is a brand new generation uh, engine, we call it the Venus 10 engine, and that has the capability to reduce those moiré patterns or eliminate them practically, uh, hence we're able to remove the filter for an advantage of the sharpness. Yeah, the low pass essentially diffused the picture is yeah. really what it was doing to a certain yeah. extent. So take it out, it's a lot sharper. That Venus 10 engine also has dramatic improvements in the color reproduction. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're seeing that and hearing a lot of good feedback on that too. And that's all designed within Panasonic? Or? Oh, yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, everything is in-house. Okay. Yeah. Complementing lenses for this new camera, anything exciting happening? Yep, we introduced um, a couple of new Leica lenses. They're Panasonic Lumix lenses, but our top tier are co-branded with uh, Leica. Mm -hmm. uh, we partner with them. Um, the 12 to 60 millimeter Leica zoom is f2.8 to 4.0. I've shot with that yeah. lens. It's great. It's a really nice it's lens. It's very nice. Well, just yeah. this past week, um, B&H started shipping the 8 to 18 millimeter version. Same basic design, same family of lenses. F2.8 to 4.0. This one's 8 to 18. Really so gorgeous. So that's uh, 16 to... Like a 16 to 35. Yeah, mm -hmm. 16 to 35, yeah. Mm -hmm. 36, yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. great. <laughs> <laughs> so we also have... A, My calculator, I, I got a special price on it. Knocks off the last digit. <laughs> we have some nice Leica primes, too, that have been very popular since we introduced um, last year. We have a 12 millimeter that's um, really sweet in addition to some of and our other... The wide aperture on that is? 1.4. Yeah, okay. Wow. All right. Sounds good. Sounds good. And, I mean, Lumix is pretty well known for, at least they were, and I hope they still are, for their compact, really high-quality point-and-shoots. Right, and we had, a whole, we had a whole line of them. There's less models in the lineup nowadays because that's the way it is in the, in the world of of cameras, um, but we I still have... I think that's a better thing. It's easier right. to differentiate. That's just right. my take on it. We've got a really nice one worth uh, a look, the LX10. Mm -hmm. Just a beautiful little camera. Uh, nice 1.4 Leica lens on it, 24 to 72 millimeter zoom. I've shot with that yeah. too, and yeah. yeah, stills and video, and it, yeah. it really is a remarkable little camera. I, w I was pleasantly surprised at how good the image quality was. Oh, sure. Uh, some, I mean, I, I tend to shoot full-frame cameras, Ben, and I pictures were sweet. They were very good. Yep. Sharp, great resolution, contrast, everything. What size is that sensor? One-inch sensor or not smaller? That is a one-inch sensor. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 That's so nice now that all our complete line has all of what we what we talk about. It's not, for a while there, it was some of our cameras had the feature, some of them didn't. What I'm talking about is touchscreen. They all have touchscreen now. They all have 4K video and 4K photo. Um, the GH5 has something new on top of that called 6K photo. Are you familiar with this? It's about it, yeah. 18 yeah. megapixel stills can be pulled out of uh, a clip shot in 6K photo mode um, that is basically uh, 30 frames a second of capture. That's a lot of... A lot of frames and a lot of data for a nice big file. Yeah, and, so. Do you foresee a time when we're going to be skipping the still function of the camera and really just be shooting ridiculously high res video and then pulling whatever frame you want and being able to retrieve a high resolution 
still file from within that video. Absolutely. I mean, when we introduced 4K photo a couple of years ago uh, with a firmware update in the GH4, um, the interface was okay. It was a little clunky in retrospect now. We've improved the interface. I see it continuing to improve to the point where, yes, exactly as you just described, but even, even just going to an electronic shutter for yeah. regular capture where we don't have that clap, flap, flap at the press conferences where you can't even hear what the people are talking about because the, the, the news guys are drowning them out with their... It's true. With all those mirrors <laughs> flapping. <laughs> let's, let's go with electronic shutter and make that a policy. And how many traditional compact point-and-shoots are you guys out with this year? Do you know? Um, well, we've got the ZS100. We've got the ZS70. And uh, the LX10 that we already mentioned. Uh, a couple more. Okay, so three to five, three to six, yeah. as opposed to yeah. five years ago when it would have been five to ten. Exactly. Yeah. Yes, yeah. it's just fewer of them. And we have the and we have the long zoom line too, which pretty much rounds out the Lumix lineup. You guys are really into one inch sensors, and you made your name on micro four thirds. Mm -hmm. um, is there ever any talk in the company about looking to? larger sensors, or are you just not even bothering with that because you've, you've got your niche? That's what my assumption is. Well, our niche right now is the Micro Four Thirds. You know, we, we were the first in mirrorless, and that was the sensor that we, that we designed into the Micro Four Thirds system. Um, are we thinking about it? Or are we talking about it? Well, we're always looking at what's happening in the business, and, you know, ultimately, we need to make what the customers want, and we want to be viable, and... Um, I think Panasonic has the capability to continue to deliver good, high-quality, top-of-the-line goods. You do. Well, we, we started with the GH5. Maybe we, we can end with it. And, and it's my impression, and you can confirm this, I suppose, is that people were really, really anticipating this, this camera. Yeah. I mean, the GH4 was such a success. What's going to come next? And... Did it meet the expectations? Are you guys satisfied oh, with how it's doing, uh, yeah. sales-wise and everything else? I, I think I would say that um, it's meeting our expectations on both the video side and the still shooter sides, but, but we want to continue to talk about its capability as a still shooter's camera, because I, I think it's under-recognized in that regard. Okay. Thomas Curley, Panasonic. Good seeing you again. We look forward to doing this again next year and the year after that. Thanks for having me. Great event here. Pleasure. Yes, it is. Stay tuned. We come back. Rod Clark from Wine Country Camera. Okay, we are. This is this is a historic moment here. We are, are sitting with Rod Clark, who's the founder and CEO of Wine Country Camera. Now, this is important because this is the very first time in our B and H Photography Podcast history that we are sitting down with a vendor and the product that I, we actually talked about in one of Al's Gearhead Picks of the Week, and very specifically the uh, Wine Country Camera filter holder system, which is pretty interesting. Uh, if if you're not familiar with it. Imagine a filter holder system built and designed by people who have been weaned and raised in Venice Beach, California. I only know from <laughs> surfing. It is so California. It's a beautiful piece. I, I, I'm, I'm kind of joking about it aesthetically. It, yeah. it looks different. It's got, is that walnut or what kind of wood is that? That's rosewood. That's rosewood rose yeah. and then a, uh, some kind of a glass epoxy material that's half the weight of aluminum. Yeah. And a lot of little wonderful buttons and gears, and it is incredibly well designed. It's beautiful to look at, and it's functional. 
it actually works as advertised. Right. Did I right. get it all right yeah, so you're, far? Yeah, you're definitely you in like there. You like that, huh? Yeah, so. No, this is a nice part. Tell us a little bit more about it in your words, because again, this is your baby. Sure. Well, first and of all, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having <laughs> me on. Uh, I really appreciate it. Um, yeah. So this has been a real labor of love for me. Um, I've been to, to kind of go on the way back machine. I've been a photographer since I was ten years old. Uh, I'm 44 now, but uh, my mom took a photography course at the Modesto Junior College in Central California. And I could make a choice. I could go to the babysitter or I could go to the photography class. So I learned how to process film and do my own printing stuff when I was 10 years old because, hey, you know, if you're going to sit there and go through the class, you might as well figure it out. There you go. And uh, it's been something I've just been passionate about my whole life. So I've worked in and around uh, uh, photography and cinema my entire life. And for the past few years, I was the head of marketing for a, a filter company. And what I realized was that Everything had gotten better in photography, except filter holders. Mm -hmm. And that I also realized that the filter companies really don't care about the user experience. Like I, sometimes I wondered whether or not there were even photographers working at the filter companies. And so I sort of made a checklist of all of the pain that I felt. <laughs> and I thought, okay, I'm gonna make a product that, that gets rid of all of the pain. And so I started to think as a landscape photographer from a workflow perspective. Mm -hmm. um, and so, so that's where a lot of the innovation came from on this, this product. Um, so to talk through the, the, the workflow, basically uh, it has, the, the unit has a polarizer, circular polarizer inside, built in. Um, most legacy filter holders have kind of a 105 polarizer that sits way out front and there's right. like a 10 millimeter gap or light pours in behind and it's like, the worst possible scenario for a polarizer. Plus, 105 polarizers, last time I checked, are expensive. So Very. Very expensive. So I've, I've had people sell their 105 polarizers and buy my system, you know. So we, we, we built it in, uh, internal. We put a geared system so that you rotate this, this knob on the back and it actually rotates the polarizer inside. Um, we did this crazy design study where we, where we studied tactile use and we found a 1964 Porsche fuel filler cap from a racing car <laughs> and we actually kind of like were inspired by that design and so we, we went through a bunch of iterations so that the thing just like feels perfect when you're using it you know so you know I, 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 when I'm doing landscape photography I, I feel like the sniper you know you get on the gun right you're on the gun you're out there and the it's you know it's go time the sun's setting you know and or the sun's rising as is often the case and, you know, you're, you're just there dialing in your pola and it's like just so easy and so perfect and it's light tight. And, uh, you know, we spared no expense with sourcing the polarizer. You know, it's, it's 2.4 millimeter thick, you know, cinema thickness, shot, shot super white glass. And do, you have um, to, do you have to deal with a filter company in order to source that or are you yeah, doing yeah. yourself? You do. So, okay. um, yeah, I have some sourcing in Japan, um, some optics companies in Japan that I work with. Um, so the polarizer itself is, is really wonderful. Um, and then the, the next sort of step is the, uh, is the grad filters, right? Grad filters have always been this thing where you kind of have this like herky-jerky kind of thing where you got to jam it in there. Um, ours has a push-button adjustment. And so, and it comes in these filter vaults right here. And so the vault has this little coin on top. We call it the wine coin. Basically, you turn the coin upside down 
and you can slip the filter in and then you turn the coin back right side up. And it locks. And it locks in place. And so now no more fingerprints on your filters. Mm. Your filters aren't going to break. You just drop them into the unit and it's ready to rock. And in the, in the outside trays where you have the uh, push buttons, that's where the, the grads go. And so you just you slide it up and down, you let go of the button, it stays right in place. And also the, the filters are in a resting state. So they're not being clamped. Um, so Which if, could introduce distortion. Uh, tons of distortion. Sure. Yeah. So, um, you know, it leaves the filters in a, a happier place. Plus, uh, because the vault is around the uh, perimeter. No light is no pouring light in anywhere, no matter what position exactly. you hold the camera, no matter where your light source is. Exactly. Sun, whatever. So, a lot of people have complained. They say, oh, well, you know, you should have a compendium lens shade on here. I go, well, there's light blocking it all around. So you don't really need it. Um, and if it's windy, you don't want the barn doors and stuff. So, so the coolest thing, I think, is the ability to extract the neutral density from behind the grad. So that is, for people who shoot 10 stops, 13 stops, 16 stops, you can't see through those. So you, if you have a grad in place and you're trying to pull your ND, you're toast, right? Because say you've set critical focus on your, your rear screen. Um, you've got your grad in the perfect place. Now you want to just drop in your ND and shoot. What are you going to do? You got to take the whole thing off. It's terrible. Then you're recomposing. You know. So with this, in the meantime, the lights change. Oh yeah. So with this, you drop it in. I'm, I'm dropping it in right now. You drop it in. Fire a shot. Pull it out. You can make a little quick adjustment. Drop your ND back in. Fire a shot. It's the only system in the world that does that. And and really, a lot of people have commented on the, the looks and the style and the innovation of the product it comes down to function. It really does come down to function. You know, the, the vault has the little wine coin. Well, the coin doesn't add any height to the vault. Like a, uh, a filter tray from a mat box has a little sprue on top. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. gonna make your bag bigger. So we didn't want that. You know, the, the thing has wood handles. Well, wood doesn't get cold like aluminum does. So if you're shooting in New England or Jackson Hole or Iceland, you're not going to be touching the thing and have it freeze your fingers. It's wood. It's nice and warm. You know, even on a hot day, it doesn't get too hot. It's temperature neutral. So there was a lot of thought that went into this. And sort of the ethos of the Wine Country camera is comes from the name. Wine Country, of course, is sort of an homage to my home state of California. Mm -hmm. But also, I wanted to have a design ethos that was timelessness. You know, that... that you could buy this and you could just use it forever and there's not going to be a version two next week and it's not going to go out of style or in style or in fashion. It's just well thought out and it's a piece of gear. I feel like photography is a community and I'm not here to make a quick buck. I'm here to be part of a community and to make people who love what I love to do because I love to shoot and I want to make it more fun for those people, you know? And that's really the focus of, of what I want to do. How long, I, have you, how long have you been around? How long so, have you been at it? Um, I've been working on the project for about three years. It took me a year to get my uh, designer to actually say yes. Um, he's like this savant genius that used to work with Microsoft. And he developed a prototype of the Surface tablet and stuff. And he was my neighbor. And he, he was always working on these crazy big projects. And I said, hey, I got this little idea, you know. 
are you interested? You know, and, and so it took me a year to get him to say, okay, fine. Now, is, is he a photographer? No, he's, he's a product designer. A pro, just, product, just a product designer. Because, again, the first thing that strikes you when you see your product is visually it's, it's startling. Um, quite often you have form following function. Yeah. What I think is amazing about this product is that form and function have equal they're equal yeah. weight here, right. and it, 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 the functionality is, is dead on, having used these before. I appreciate everything you're talking about here. And then visually and aesthetically, and even from a tactile point of view, yeah. it's an experience. Yeah, it's an experience. I don't think you can call any of the filter holder an experience, but even just looking at this, it makes you stop and look and even just think about what it does and how it does it. Yeah, it really comes from the workflow. I did a lot of analysis you have the 3D modeling, and we'd take the 3D modeler and we'd look at the way the wood is chamfered on the inside. And I would say, okay, you know, I'm gonna imagine this lens is, is looking this direction, you know, and I'd, I'd have him angle it and I'd look through in the 3D model and you could see, okay, we need to trim some wood away there or it's gonna vignette, you know. And there, there was a lot of, like I said earlier, there's this design study that we did on the tactile sensation of the, the rotating polarizer and, um, it was a it was a lot of fun. There's, uh, there's definitely thought in every single aspect of this product. Yeah, there are two ways about it. Yeah, for yep. sure. Um, What's your vendor discount? <laughs> <laughs> and how were uh, I'm, you don't have to tell us all the details, but how are sales going? Have you noticed any places that are more interested, or where are you selling? Is it just in the states now? Or They're you all everywhere? over the world. Um, sales are strong. Um, uh, UK, Europe, Australia. Mm -hmm. um, I've had interest in the Middle East. Um, Far and away, B&H has been the best. Mm -hmm. um, not only from just the volume perspective, but also from the customer support. I just constantly speaking with customers who are just thrilled with with it. And um, and how did that end up go? The finding the distributors, finding the retailers, especially overseas. How was that? It, it's been going really well. Yeah. It's I mean we're it's still we're still growing. We're still growing. Um, you know the little camera stores are they're a little more hesitant to bring on new products, but, um, you know, it's sort of a boutique product that people are more interested in buying online. One thing I can tell you is I haven't had a single return. Oh, wow. I haven't had a That's single nice. person return it. That's I've nice. had people email me and say, hey, you know, the, the, this little filter is, uh, you know, it's, it's a little bit tight in, the, in this vault, you know, help me out. And I'll say, oh, okay, you know, do this and that. And they'll get it worked out and they go, oh, it's working great now, you know. Um, it's been uh, it's been a great it's been a great experience for Where me. Where is I, it actually manufactured? Do you have somebody specifically because these are these are some interesting materials. It's not just taking you know bl a blocks of aluminum and just machining them down. There's yeah. a lot of craft in here. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting materials in here. Um, the uh, the the filter vaults are made from this uh, resin material that it's the same stuff they make Glocks out of. Right? Oh yeah, yeah, okay. It's like weapon grade resin but I'm putting it to better use. We're shooting other things, you know? We're doing better things for humanity with that resin. Uh, it's made in Asia. We have actually a really close relationship uh, with a factory in China that does the work for us. And then all the glass, uh, it's, it's all um, shot glass. Um, I get my filters. We're coming out with a filter line pretty soon. Uh, it's coming from Japan, from mm -hmm. an optics manufacturer in Japan. Um, it's kind of the next generation of the vapor deposition coating um, so the next generation of NDs coming soon, probably in the next six weeks. Something to live for. Something, yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. 
That so, was going to be my, my question is what's next because you kind of always have to have something coming up next. Yeah, you, so uh, the, the roadmap basically is, uh, is this system, um, some NDs and grads for this system, mm-hmm. um, and then we're going to do a larger system okay. for the ultra-wide lenses. The 150 system should come out at what's Photo What's the least. widest you could, uh, lens you could use with this system the way it is right now? So people use the, you know, the 1635s are really right. popular across certain, uh, all brands, you know. Um, my Sony 1635... Uh, works and vignettes at about 17, 18 millimeters. Okay. Um, but I've heard from customers say that the, I can't remember if it's the Nikon or the Canon, will go full wide um, at 16. But it's, it's around that sort of 16, 17 mark is where it starts okay. to vignette a little bit, depending on the uh, brand. Um, but we're going to go with, a, we're going to do a larger system that's going to be lens specific for those, you know, for your 1424s and the really wide stuff out there, the Zeiss 15s and stuff like sure. that. So excellent. Uh, 35 leaf shutter, uh, uh, phase one, and all Great. that stuff. Yeah. And do you sell through your own website too, or just through? The... I do sell through my own website okay. as well. And uh, it's winecountry.camera. Wine so yeah, www.winecountry.camera. It's a fun site, by the way. Oh, cool. Yeah. yeah. It's the only photo site I've ever gone to where they tell you about the product and encourage you to sit down, have something to drink. It's <laughs> a- <laughs> All right, so our motto is uh, shoot first, drink later. Yes, that's it. I love it. Yeah, I think you use that on there. Yes, I actually, I think I mentioned that on that one when we, we gave you a little plug that time. Yeah, so. Um, this is great. Well, it, it's terrific to meet you and actually see this product uh, other than in photographs. And, and I, I, I have to encourage our listeners that if you, if you do use NDs, you use polarizers, and you're into really good precision gear, definitely take a look at the Wine Country camera uh, filter holder system. It's well worth the time. It's a beautiful, beautiful product, well executed, and it, do, it performs as advertised. Thanks. Can't so, say more than that. You know, the, the, the only thing I can say is uh, you talk to people about filters and they say, ugh, I hate using filters. My goal in life is to make people say, I love using filters because, hey, I want to stand next to a tripod for three hours and watch the sunset, and I want to make that experience magical from beginning to end. So if I can take away the pain and make photography more enjoyable for more people, then that's then we're, we're all winning together. And all right. Very good. Thanks for having me on. Okay, that's a wrap on another fine show. I know I learned a few things. I hope you did too. The next episode is going to be on the 2017 solar eclipse, which is coming up this summer. And remember, do take a moment Go to iTunes, subscribe, leave a comment. Tell the world how much you love us, because, in fact, we love you, too. Just remember that. In the meantime, on behalf of Jason Tables, John Harris, and myself, thank you so much for tuning in today.